Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Good evening. My name is Kent, and I'm a grateful, recovered sexaholic and uh, excited about this um, about this this uh, 2019 group that was called Sim. Very happy to be part of it. Woke up this morning extremely excited. Uh, I actually woke up just shortly after 4 a.m. my time, which is noon UTC, and I sent off a quick message to. Uh, Daniel and I said basically that it's launch time, isn't it? And uh, it was pretty exciting. I'm really grateful to be part of this, and I'm grateful to be um, here this evening. I'd like to open with a prayer that uh, uh, I know as uh, the the fog light prayer. So join me in a moment of silence, and I'll come back with the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, for those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. And I really like that prayer because it really sums up what my purpose on earth is, what, what the whole concept of recovery is for me. And it gives me an idea and a, and a reason for doing what I do. And... Um, uh, my name is Kent. I'm a grateful recovered sexaholic from Portland, Oregon. The nature of my addiction is using and abandoning boys and men physically, emotionally, and spiritually from the age of eight until I was 53 and entered the program of recovery where I got sober, discovered recovery, and accepted a power greater than myself, which has restored me to sanity, and that power I call God. And that restored to sanity is a promise I never understood when I got into the program of recovery. Nobody explained to me that uh, we could regain sanity. I mean, we talked about it a lot in the meetings about, you know, what sanity was. So as a newcomer in the meetings, I, I know that I heard a lot of phrases, I heard a lot of things, and I heard a lot of uh, uh, questions, um, and I heard a lot of opinions but I didn't hear a lot of recovery, uh, or at least I didn't recognize it as recovery. So one of the things that uh, I can see now in retrospect is recovery takes a different form uh, basically in every person. Every per- person recovers in a different way. And the promise of the rep- program of recovery is that we can recover. That's why um, I'm recovered now, that means uh, the mental obsession to lust has been lifted for today. 
just for today. I'm only recovered one day at a time. And I can't get any better, but I can certainly get worse. Um, so sponsorship and the newcomer. You know, the whole thing, well, little background, a little bit of my story. Uh, I was, what burned in my brain at a very young age was the image that I was somewhat alone. I was the younger of, <clears throat> well, youngest of three boys. So uh, I was kind of the the last thought or the, the one that was somewhat ignored. I was gifted for uh, musically, and my parents at least did promote my musical talents, and I was grateful for that. And when I did well, I got praised, and when I did poorly, I got chastised. My parents, you know, in the mid-60s, you know, spanking was the norm. So when you were not behaving, you got a spanking of some sort. Um, and I was never close to my parents. And my father was uh, somewhat of a, well, he was rude and very arrogant and very um, mean-spirited to all of us to keep us in line. It was one of the ways that he used to keep the kids in line. My mother's pretty much put up with it, and um, I just never felt safe around my father. Uh, I just I had a long burning resentment towards him that lasted most of my life, most of his life, as a matter of fact. And uh, I, um, I I used those resentments towards my family and towards my father as uh, my tool for lust. I remember at the age of eight standing in front of a mirror, masturbating, and, and just finding that a fascinating picture. I just, I wanted more of that. And I shared it with the friends up the street and down the street, you know, three or four of us. And it was just a lot of fun. And that, that became my goal. I wanted that again and again and again. I just kept wanting that throughout grade school and high school and into college and I was constantly uh, damaging relationships because I kept seeking that. And when my friends started moving off towards girls and I was moving off towards, uh, I, I, I wanted them to stick with me, but they weren't. And that was, that just made me draw ever more inward because I couldn't, I couldn't be who I was around everybody. And uh, when I got the attentions of an older man, uh, I certainly took, those attentions and utilized, uh, utilized his, uh, used him to escape from my family. And I was grateful to get out of there and to move on to the big city where I could actually uh, learn more about all of this lifestyle, which I very much got into and didn't realize that I was also uh, getting into drugs and alcohol. And that brought me back to my parents' house, and I went back to a college for the second time and dropped out for the second time because, hey, I tried this model. Uh, I tried a different model. Instead of male, I tried a female model. And uh, she fit, and it was a lot of fun. And we decided to get married. Why not? We might as well get married because that seems like the right thing to do. Um crazy insanity and that's the way that we lived our lives and for whatever reason god actually put us together i see that 
now for a reason. And we kept asking ourselves throughout our marriage, why are we together? There must be some reason that we are together. I don't understand it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but we're together for some reason. But that didn't stop me from going out. So my whole life was just uh, using a bulldozer to pave the road the way that I wanted to pave, regardless of the cost to anybody else. And I uh, utilized that. I became the brute. I became the insensitive person to everybody else, the one that I said I would never be because my father was such a person. And uh, here I was. Uh, we had a son. We moved many times. And my addiction followed me everywhere I went. As a matter of fact, when I, we started our own business, I just took my addiction with me on the road. And that was even more convenient for me. And by the, about 2000, uh, 2011, I was at my bottom. I really wanted out of my marriage. And I wanted to have a relationship with somebody else, but I knew that nothing would ever come of that that I would continue the same pattern with anybody that I was with. It didn't matter whether I was married to a woman or in a relationship with a man. I would just continue the same pattern. I knew that. So without knowing what it meant to concede your innermost self, I had already conceded to my innermost self that I was a sexaholic, that something was wrong, that I wasn't going to fix it. I couldn't stop. And that's what brought me into the rooms. And I will say that the first day in the room, my very first meeting, even though I was late, they turned it into a first step meeting and they shared openly and I lost it. It was the first time that I let loose all of this stuff that was going on in my life and in my head. And it was the first time that I really felt at home, that I felt actually safe. So getting into the fellowship as a new person getting to trust the people, that's the first thing that we have to do is to trust that what they have is something that we can, um, we can attach to, that we can trust these people and we can trust what they say. And learning to trust is a big thing for the addict. I know that for me, it took me a while to really begin to learn to trust. And one of the things that they always talked about is, you know, well, you want to get a sponsor. Well, what does that mean, a sponsor? Well, in the old days of AA, you couldn't go to an AA meeting without somebody bringing you. That's why they were called a sponsor. So as a matter of fact, you couldn't go to a meeting in the early days of AA without having gone through the 12 steps. And so Clarence Snyder um, developed a, a, what he called uh, fixing rummies, and carried that message to many thousands of people out in uh, in uh, Cleveland and uh, helped them to get sober because he he wanted to help people. He knew that it was imperative for him to stay sober, and he knew it was imperative for them to get as sober as quickly as possible so they could start helping other people. And that was the whole key. So get a sponsor. Well, what does that mean? Get a sponsor. The same thing that when I was looking for a sponsor, I kept getting the same message. Find somebody who has what you want and ask them. 
Well, the first sponsor that I got was, I was paired with um, because I was about a month or so into the program, not yet had a sponsor, and a well-meaning friend asked me, hey, well, so-and-so needs a sponsor, uh, needs a sponsee. And we got started. And we, um, I like the man. Uh, I haven't seen him for a while, I'm sorry to say. But I like the man a lot. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him. And he gave me some very interesting uh, readings to get started with. Not all programmatic, but helping me to at least start looking at uh, step one and what it is that I had done and how, what brought me into the program. And that was good. Um, he lost his sobriety and I chose to not continue with that because I wasn't feeling like I was getting anywhere. Whose responsibility is that? Well, it's pretty much my responsibility as a newcomer. I have to be wanting it. Well, I was wanting it. And uh, so I looked for another sponsor who helped me for a number of years. Uh, he had what I wanted. He had the serenity. He had the acceptance. Um, he had the, the, uh, the peace of mind during difficult times that he was going through at that time in his life. And that's what I was looking for is the ability to breathe no matter what pressures professional pressures or personal pressures or whatever pressures were on me, um, I wanted to be able to breathe because I couldn't breathe at six months sober and six months in that program. So I asked him and he said yes, and he helped me work through the steps. And we got through all the way up to about step nine. And he said, you know, you've, you've come about as far as, uh, as I've gone. I'm still doing my step nine. And I thought, okay, well, uh, maybe together we can work on steps 10, 11, and 12. And not knowing really what that all meant. But I thought, well, let's, let's go ahead and continue this. And, and we did for a while, but I, I was drifting. I was feeling like something was missing. I was feeling a relief, but this, this uh, spiritual experience, this aha moment, this feeling of freedom hadn't yet really descended upon me. I felt freer. I felt like, oh boy, you know, I, I know my character defects and um, now I've said my sixth and seventh step and I've, I've said the seventh step prayer, not realizing, no one explained to me that this is an, a new way of life. I have to adopt something. I have to make this be my life. I can either go back to the lifestyle that I had and live that life because that, that life is still waiting for me. And I, it's certainly building. Lust is building a great big bed for me, and I am not wanting to go back there. Or I have to take on a new way of living. I need, but I hadn't passed through that triumphant arch of free man yet that Bill talks about in the big book. Uh, I didn't quite get that. And it was listening to some AA podcasts, a, a big book thumpers, that it, I finally got it. The whole concept of the mental obsession and the phenomenon of craving, which no one ever explained to me, took hold. I finally accepted that lust 
is that. Lust is that drug. And unlike the alcoholic who has to go out and grab the bottle and open it up and drink it, all I have to do is blink or glance in the right direction. And it's right there. It's just like an instant IV for me. Um, and when I, when, when I understood and felt that mental obsession and the phenomenon of craving because of a lack or a deficient spiritual connection, it all suddenly fell together. It finally fell together. And so I decided to switch to another sponsor, somebody who had what I wanted. I was talking to my wife. I'd sure like to, you know, I'd really like to have so-and-so as my sponsor. And she said, well, why don't you do what I hear you tell your other fellows to do and ask him? I'm like, oh, well, I guess I could, couldn't I? What's the worst that could happen? He could say no. Um, yeah, well, that's the worst that could happen. It's my own ego that's in the way. And so I asked him, and he said, sure. And we've been working on it, and now it's a new way of life for me. And I am grateful for having a new way of living because my old way of living worked to keep me and all of my character defects safe and alive and it kept me going. Um, however, when it stopped working, that whole big train was still coming down the track at me and I couldn't stop it. So sponsorship and newcomers. When I come into the doors of, of SA, when a newcomer comes into the doors of SA, what I try to do is go up and say, welcome. Are you new? And I introduce my, give me my name and I ask for their name and I ask, have you been to a meeting before? Before we have our meeting. I try to get to the meetings early and ask them, uh, have you been before? And then if they've not, I try to let whoever's leading the meeting know that we have a newcomer so that we can have a newcomer meeting. Um, the most important thing that we can do as SA members for the newcomer is to make them feel welcome and let them know that they're accepted no matter what. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and to become sexually sober, period. You want to stop lusting. You want to get sexually sober. That's really it. So if they want to do that, they're in the right place. If they don't, well, they'll soon enough learn that they're not in the right place. And that's okay too, because it helps me remember why I'm here. I want to stop lusting and I want to be sexually sober today. And um, as a newcomer, I would encourage them, and I do try to encourage them to call. Now, I don't claim to sponsor everybody. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that I can be helpful to anybody who wants to uh, give me a call. And what I encourage people, we always pass around one of the newcomer sheets and everybody signs their name and, or writes their name and their telephone number. And um, if somebody asks me to sponsor them, I say, do you still have that list of names? And they say, yes. And I said, first thing you have to do is you have to call everybody on that list this week. And 
what am I doing? I want to make sure that they want to follow directions. And I want to make sure that they start integrating. Newcomers need to integrate. You have to have a place to be. We're addicts. We're sex addicts. We love to be alone. We don't want anybody invading our spots. We don't want anybody coming into our little world because this is where we live. Don't bother me. No, don't, don't try to break my concentration with something called reality. I don't need reality. I need my fantasy. That's not going to work if we want a recovery. So as a newcomer, we have to integrate. And the best way to start integrating is to talk to other sexaholics. That's a hard thing to do, especially because, you know, I would, I'm a talkative person. Okay, I'm a Gemini. I like to talk. But still, picking up a phone and talking to somebody I don't know about sex, well, that's okay if I'm trying to pick somebody up and have sex with them. Not so okay when I'm trying to let go of my lust. Well, we have to learn to do that. And that's one of the key things uh, as a newcomer that I try to get, that I try and hope and pray that people get impressed and that they uh, impressed upon them and that they move forward with uh, connecting, reaching out and uh, making the real connection. And then you'll find that you're home. But the next real connection that's going to have to be made is an understanding that we've got to be connecting with God. As uh, my former sponsor likes to say, you know, God exists between you and me. This is where God is. This is how I connect with God is between you and me. And this is where God lives. If it's just here, this is only the place that I am talking to God, then it's just in my brain. And my brain is a dangerous place to be. I don't want to be in my brain. But if I'm talking with you, and you're talking with me, then we have a connection, and we have a connection with God. So as a newcomer, having a connection, finding somebody who has what you want, they have a desire, they have the fire, they have the drive, um, they have the quality of life, the peace. None of my sponsors have my sexual proclivities, but they have their own and every one of them is a sexaholic, and that's all that's necessary. We identify through our disease. We don't identify through our acts. As an alcoholic, I wouldn't identify with somebody who drank uh, whiskey unless I was looking at my, uh, uh, you know, that, no, 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 no. We're alcoholics. We drink to an excess. Well, here we're sexaholics. We don't know how to utilize lust in a healthy human fashion. We use it in a very inhumane fashion. So we look for somebody who has what we want to have in the quality of our lives, and we start working with them. And big ego bester, I'm sorry, I know this is going to, uh, this is going to burst some of your bubbles, but as a newcomer, we're here as a group, the first thing that we have to learn is uh, to let go of our ego. So my sponsor likes to say is the steps begin with we. 
And the traditions start with our. It's not a me program and it's not a Kent program. It's a common program. And that is one of the first things that we have to understand is that we're in this boat together and we're here to help the newcomer get into the boat and to be saved if the newcomer wants it. But the newcomer can't be too proud to reach out the hand. So um, let go of the ego, ask somebody to sponsor and be uh, willing to follow the directions and, um, and step up into the work. And don't be afraid of the work. Pick up the phone and call. So if newcomers have a responsibility to whom? To themselves. As a sponsor, what's my responsibility? As a sponsor, <clears throat> my responsibility is to be there. I want always the hand of SA to be there. And for that, I am responsible. So I will reach out to a person who is new to the program and say, do you want to work on anything? Do you want to work on it? I'll say, do you want a temporary sponsor? And if they do, that's great. If they don't, I encourage them to I make sure that uh, I encourage them to make meetings let them know to other meetings I go to, other meetings I know of, other meetings where they're at. Um, uh, make, uh, I work with I make sure that they have my phone number or I have theirs. I call them newcomers who come into the meeting and identify as newcomers. I'll get their phone numbers. I, my responsibility is not to say it's your responsibility. My responsibility as a sponsor and as a member of the program, as a mentor, as somebody who's growing, is is to help. So I'll get their number and I'll call them for several weeks. If they don't call back and they stop coming to the program, well, they're not ready. And I let them go. That's also my responsibility is to let them go. So my responsibility is to stay sober. It's not my responsibility to make sure that a sponsee gets sober. It's not my responsibility to make sure that a sponsee does the work. It's not my responsibility to make sure that the sponsee anything. It's my responsibility to stay sober. Nothing so ensures immunity to alcoholism, to lust for us, than working with a newcomer. It's something we cannot be missed. That is the greatest gift of the program, is to have something to pass on to someone else. I'll have something different than some of my other friends in the program. Everybody's got something different, but it's attraction, not promotion. And anybody who wants what I have, I'm more than happy to share it with them, and they can have it. And the more I can give away, the more I have to give away. That's how it works, and I'm grateful for that. So my responsibility is also to be part of the fellowship. But as a sponsor, somebody who's recovered, part of the fellowship also means that I need to get out there and I need to be involved in this program. And I really am strongly involved in service work. I believe in service work. Uh, I don't know. I stumbled into service work myself and as a newcomer, you'll hear that a lot. Service work, service work, service work. Service work keeps us sober. Service work gives us another foundation of our recovery. 
so that we can uh, grow as people and adopt a program of recovery and make it be our way of living. So service is a big foundation uh, for me. If you think about the triangle, the AA triangle, you've got recovery, service, and unity or fellowship. And that's service is a really big component of it. And that can be anything from setting up the chairs to volunteering to lead a meeting or volunteering to sit back and let other people lead the meeting um, to I actually stumbled into intergroup by accident um, one Sunday evening because we arrived early for our meeting. My wife is in uh, SNN and I'm in SA and there that Sunday night meeting. We have two separate rooms to have our meetings in, but we went to the intergroup meeting and I was, I was interested. I thought, well, how does this business function? Because uh, we're in business and I just, I thought it would be interesting. And I sat through a number of intergroup meetings and as God would have it, I guess, uh, the treasurer left and the new treasurer decided not to continue. And because of my background, somebody asked me if I would be treasurer. I was six months sober by then, and that was the only requirement. And I said, yes. And by the grace of God, I, I served uh, for as treasurer for intergroup. And uh, over the last seven years, I've been trading it back and forth with another member with uh for that position and now we've brought on a third member so that we can all kind of rotate the treasurership it's important when you're dealing with money that you have a sound business minds or, or sound people who are reliable and are sober and are recovered handling the money but um we also have to trust in god as well but we also got, my wife and I both got involved with our regional uh, planning committee for the uh, for our regional retreats, which we do every two years. And we became very active in all the regional retreats. There's two regional retreats in our region um, every uh, six months. So we are very active in, and attend the regional retreats. We've also been attending international retreats, and I got involved in the regional and then at the delegate level just because I was interested. But what also keeps me sober, and it gives me a broader perspective of, of what it is that we have to carry to our fellowship and what it is, what our responsibilities are to each other. And um, I encourage everyone to get into service work. It's a big, big, big world of service work out there waiting to be filled, and you can do it. For the newcomer, uh, service work can be as simple as getting to the meetings every week and showing up a little early and talking to people. That's service work. When we share with each other, even in a casual format, just I heard this uh, on a, a tape that I was listening to uh, uh, today, that uh, even going to fellowship after a meeting is service work because we're connecting with each other as human beings. And the more human that we can feel, the more we can feel okay in our own skins. We are not bad people. We have done bad things.
Well, the way I learned that or the place I learned that is through fellowship, through, um, you know, getting together after the meetings and realizing that everybody around me is just human. And they may have done different things that I've done, but it's just things we've done. We're still at our cores, human and good people. And that's, that's very important to the newcomer. So that's something that a newcomer can also do as service work, help set up and help get involved. If your group has coffee, uh, try and get in there and help to make the coffee, uh, help to set out the literature, uh, set up the tables, whatever. Just the little things, just to become involved with, with your group. Um, so, wow, you know, I've been rambling on how long? Oh, wow, about a half an hour. Uh, so, um, should, are we opening this up for questions or, or how, how do we want to do this? Hey, Ken. <coughs> Sorry. Thanks, V. Um, Thanks, V. We don't have any questions as okay. of yet, although there is someone typing on the WhatsApp okay. group, so we may, something may come up. Uh, it was just funny. Um, it's funny. I had a very similar experience where not long after, you know, rel relatively early when I joined the program, I also walked in. I was supposed to be Tuesday night, and I always meet my sponsor Tuesday night. We come in, and he forgot that there's an interview group meeting. We're like, okay. I have no idea what interview group is. I've, so I'm just sitting there. Um, and uh, I think at that meeting, they actually, the treasurer was retiring. <laughs> so, they said, so they asked me, my sponsor said, I should take it. So I said, okay, I'll take it. And I, just, I, and I actually just left. I just gave up that position, and I became the nearer rep now for our region, but. And it's very funny. I had the exact same thing. So it was, it was funny. <laughs> That's great. Um, That's great. Yeah. So we do have a question here. Yes. So Aaron M. Yeah. Uh, do you have any suggestions on how to fire or move on from a sponsor who you think is not working for you, especially if you think he will be hurt by the rejection? Um. Uh, to move on um, from a sponsor, yes. Well, uh, and I've done that to two sponsors, as a matter of fact. So, first of all, I prayed. And uh, I also talked to a couple of trusted members who were uh, more sober and more experienced than I was. And a good friend or mentor in the program will question me as to my motives. So that's why praying is very important. You know, what is my motive? Um, I, do I feel that I'm better than? Well, then it's my ego that's in the way, and I need to give it more time. But really, when it comes to uh, moving on from a sponsor, the reason that I moved on from a sponsor is because I had reached a point that uh, I wasn't growing. I knew I could feel that I needed more growth and this sponsor wasn't able to do anything more with it. Uh, and that's why I chose to move on. And so to do so, I called them. Uh, the first sponsor had called and let me know that he was, uh, had lost his sobriety. And he said, you know, you, you, we can continue to work together or you can find another sponsor, whatever you'd like to do. And I said, I, I need to pray about it. 
And a couple of days later, I came back and I, I called him. And I said, yeah, I think I will find another sponsor. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you at the Monday meeting because I saw him every week, a couple of times a week. Um, so number one, what somebody else thinks of me is not my, none of my business. Uh, there's a great saying that goes, you know, um, you'd be surprised how little people really think of me. Um, and that's really true. Uh, then the other thing is how somebody else takes it is not my responsibility insofar as I am not as insofar as I am kind. If I'm rude, abrasive, put them down, well then that's not a good thing. I mean that's a character defect that I I need to be working on. And I will just create another wreckage in my past to have to make an amend for. But if I'm saying to them with love, I really love you. I look forward to seeing you at the meetings. I, this isn't working for me. I'm going to find another sponsor. End of story. And then find another sponsor. But the other thing is I would highly recommend, and I tell this to my sponsees or anybody who asks me, always separate from your current sponsor before asking your next sponsor. Uh, otherwise, it's akin to, you know, serial monogamy. And that's just not, that's not good. You need a period of time. You need a break. Thank you. All right, we got a couple of questions just came in. So sure. it's a question from Elaine P. I sure. don't quite get the question. Maybe you will, or maybe she can explain it better. Uh, what to do with a female newcomer in an original men group, perhaps all married? Oh, I think she's just asking um, what the oh. men do with a female newcomer. Um, right. Well, um, actually, Kathy R. in our region is uh, heading up a subcommittee, which is uh, studying how to attract more women to our program. So uh, this is actually a very relevant question because a lot of women are very uncomfortable in men with being men. So all that I can say is that program of recovery and as a homosexually oriented man walking into a room full of sexually oriented men, I can relate to being around people who are my own triggers. And, you know, of course... I'm male, so I look like them. The fact that uh, I'm not necessarily their triggers uh, puts a different dynamic on it than uh, I would be if I were a female. However, the dynamic is still the same from the standpoint of it's my recovery. I'm there to recover. And as long as I'm appropriate with you and you're appropriate with me, we're going to get along okay. But if you get inappropriate, I, I will have to step aside and I will have to ask, have uh, a conversation. 99% of the time that I know of, women are very respectfully treated. Uh, there's a number of uh, speaker tapes out there about women coming into male uh, groups. Um, I think Sylvia even talks about it uh, a number of times. 
So uh, we're talking about a long time ago and, and the, her own experiences that it's almost always okay. Of course, there are exceptions, but that's true with anybody, with any group, anywhere. So I would say just focus on the fact that we're there for recovery. And if you go in for recovery and you make that clear that you're here for recovery and without having to put up defenses, um, you can recover. Yeah, and Suzanne had a talk earlier which um, focused heavily on mm. women in men's meetings and stuff. So there will be recordings available probably next week sometime once we get some sleep. So, whoever, uh, Elaine, I highly suggest you get hold of that recording. Perfect. Uh, next question, Joe B. Should you call a sponsee who won't call you? How many times before you give up? Uh, a sponsee call me. Before I give up on them? You call your sponsor who is not calling you. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, you know, uh, about the same amount of time as I call anybody in the program who doesn't call back. Um, you know, I'll go for two or three weeks. Um, and first of all, I do ask sponsors to check in with me every day. That doesn't mean that I won't call them, but I do ask them to call every day. And I ask them to call about the same time so I know when to expect the call and they know whether or not I'm actually going to be available. Um, and when I don't hear from somebody after two or three days when they've been regular callers, um, then I will make a call. And I'll do that for a couple of weeks, every two to three days or so, and I'll make a call. And if they don't call back, then I stop calling. And I'll just, in the last call, I'll simply say, well, I hope to see you at a meeting. Because I probably by then am not seeing them at a meeting. Now, I do have a couple of sponsees whom I started the relationship that way, and they just weren't very good callers. And one guy is, uh, I love him to death, and he's uh, working on his fourth step, and he's been working on his fourth step for about three and a half years. And it's like, I keep saying, <laughs> this doesn't have to be working on it. We're not working on it. <laughs> what have you been doing? Well, I haven't really worked on it. Okay. I see him every week. And we have that kind of conversation. So is he my sponsee? Uh, you know, in name only maybe, but that's okay. I'm here for him if he wants to utilize me. So, you know, it's a, it's a relationship. And as much of a relationship as they want to have is as much of a relationship as we'll have. On the other hand, I don't chase somebody. Um, if they don't come to the meetings and they don't call, you let go. Because uh, as it says in the big book, you don't want to spoil your chances for them later. And you certainly want to be available for the next man or woman. Right. <laughs> so we have Yehuda from Brooklyn. Uh, you discussed the importance of making the newcomer feel welcome and ensuring you get sponsored and on track quickly. Um, what about relapsers? He says, unfortunately, I've seen members who relapse, maybe even chronic slippers. Um, he's seen them fall. Th- uh, seen them, you know, fall through the cracks because they aren't give- they aren't given the same love as a struggling newcomer. Mm-hmm. How do we balance treating relapsers with love and not enabling them? 
and not, you know, not making them feel like we're okay with them relapsing. I think that's his question. Got it. Um, that's a really tough one uh, for me. Well, it's not that tough. I, I mean, it, it's a great question because the, the, it begs the question of, do you want to be sober? Uh, after all, this is a program for people who want to become sexually sober and uh, have progressive victory over lust. If I'm in a chronic state of acting out and I keep trying to get sober and I get a week and then I relapse and I get a week and I relapse, um, and if they're my sponsee, I sit down with them and I, I have a real frank conversation or I, and say, is this something you want? Are you really a sexaholic? Maybe you're not a sexaholic. Maybe you're, um, maybe you're just a chronic luster who, you know, uh, similar to the heavy hard drinker, you know, who once you're faced with some impending doom, you will actually stop. But um, if you want to stop, if you want to get well, then it's time that we do this. But I'll tell you, it, the situation usually fixes itself. People who are chronic relapsers, I've noticed, tend to eventually drift away from the program. Uh, I only know a couple of people in the program who've been in for a length of time and have uh, little continuous sobriety. They might have a lot of aggregate sobriety, but continuous sobriety is not so, uh, not so long. Um, but there is that statement in the second, uh, forward to the second edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which says, and of the remainder, that's the remaining 25% who have not gotten sober, those who stayed saw improvement. And all I can say is if they're getting improvement and they're sticking with the program and they're still trying, God bless them. And I can do nothing more than to love them. God loves them. Who am I to do any less? Can't argue with that. Uh, all right, we got a question from Cindy. What's our time like? Uh, 46. All right, Cindy, how often is it recommended to meet with a sponsor? And can you share what a typical connection might look like? Share what, a, what kind of connection? Typical connection. I'm assuming she oh, means typical. what does a, a sponsor-sponsor relationship look like? Yeah. Well, in our fellowship, um, if you're in a bigger city, the typical relationship would be you get together. Uh, <clears throat> I shoot for uh, once a week, and that usually happens via telephone, even in the city here. But I do have a number of uh, sponsors who don't live in my city or state and uh, sponsees, and, and so... I try to make sure that we have at least weekly meetings. Uh, sponsorship style changes. The more you sponsor, you begin to, you begin to adopt more things of, of your own spiritual growth, and you begin to try to impart that or to utilize that to, uh, at least this is my experience, utilize that. I, I do not sponsor the same way today that I did four years ago. Thank goodness. Um, but I'm, I encourage people to jump into this and do it as quickly as possible. 
to get traction, to get sober, to get some kind of spiritual connection, and then build on that. Because if we do this right, we're building a brand new way to live, and we will continue to do this work every day of our life for the rest of our lives. And it becomes, it becomes our life, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. Not that it consumes us, it takes us away from everything else, but supports everything else. And that's what makes it such a beautiful thing. So, as often as possible, try to do it weekly. Uh, try to do it face-to-face if you can, depending on the distance. And if, uh, if you can't do it face-to-face, you know, and, but travel permits, to be able to meet up uh, once or twice a year is a great thing. Um, so it, it, it all depends on a lot of different things. Our fellowship is very widely dispersed, and I'm grateful for that. This particular function, this SIM function, and last year's Geek Camp provided a, a, an incredible launch pad for bringing the fellowship together worldwide. So there's a lot more opportunity to sponsor and to find sponsors uh, with different uh, spiritual connections out there. So I guess I wandered off the topic there. But basically, uh, do it as often as you can and, as, and get through the steps as quickly as you can and start sponsoring as soon as you can because that's what it's all about. All right, next question. We've got a few more minutes. Uh, Lippy from the U.K., a guy who's working his program but is not staying sober. What should he do if he's contacted by newcomers? So we're talking a fresh newcomer, someone who has never been to a meeting yet. He knows this guy's an SA, and he calls him and asks him, you know, do I, you know, what do I do? So he's saying, should he pass the new, newcomer on to someone sober, or should he share whatever message he has and leave the rest to God? I like that. Option two. Um, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, do that. I, that's very interesting. This happened in a, a group that I'm in and um, the newcomers asked somebody who uh, he knows the guy doesn't have a lot of sobriety, which is fine. The guy has a lot of experience, a lot of background, uh, but they also have a common religious background. And all I can say is, well, maybe God's working in that relationship and that's a good thing. Right? So, um, I n- would never get in the middle of something like that. I would always uh, be a support, say, call me anytime. And that's what I've said. That's what I say to Nuna. Call me anytime. Uh, sometimes they do. Most of the times they don't. But invariably, God works these things out. It's beyond my understanding and certainly beyond my power. And thank God it's beyond my control. Right. Um, Elaine. Elaine's, I'm sorry, Elaine. I don't, I think she's referring to her original question, but I don't really understand what she's saying. I think I'm missing the train of thought. Um, I'll go to the next question. I apologize. Uh, Jared lives in a small town. The local essay meeting is very small. Mm. Usually only three, four people at the meeting. Person with the longest sobriety is just shy of a year. Would it be wise of me to drive an hour and a half to the next closest meeting? 
and uh, to find a sponsor with longer length of sobriety, or should I just stick to this guy? <laughs> well, um, remember, we've agreed to go to any length uh, for sobriety. So, uh, if you've agreed to go to any length for sobriety, then go to any length for sobriety. Uh, be, driving 90 minutes to a different meeting is not unheard of in more remote areas. So, and sometimes in some very large metropolitan areas. Uh, but by all means, the more meetings you can make, the better your sobriety can become. Uh, and it is not always a sometimes it's the only way that groups get started is you'll have one person who can sponsor multiple people but you want to make sure that the individual people being sponsored can begin to learn to do their own sponsoring so that they're not necessarily while they do pass the message and they pass the pattern down they're not always uh there's not always just one one train of thought so we do want to have um, as much uh, exposure as you can get to it. So if you can go to another meeting, do so. But we have phone meetings. So there are telephone meetings that are available. You can find people who have sobriety in those. Uh, you can join up with the WhatsApp chat groups for SIM and for Geek Camp. You'll find a lot of sober members and capable sponsors there. So you can do remote sponsorship as well, um, but don't be afraid to ask somebody of those three or four people who has recovery if they would sponsor you to at least get yourself started. There's nothing wrong with uh, sticking with the hometown as well. You just have to find somebody who has what you want. All right. Uh, this is probably going to be our final question, but let's see. Okay. Uh, so anonymous, uh, sometimes some newcomers have serious problems during the program, attempting mm -hmm. suicide and so on. Uh, they don't necessarily stay sober. How do we treat these newcomers, <clears throat> you know, program, confession, etc. Mm. Well, uh, support them, love them. Um, there are those, too, who have grave emotional and mental disorders, but they, too, can get sober if they have the capacity to be honest. Don't forget that passage, because it's true. I have a sponsee who has some difficult emotional disorder, and I'm not qualified to do that. If I accept that I am not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor, that's not my realm, I'm here to help him work his steps. He's earnestly working the steps. And in early working together, he had some problems. He had to be hospitalized. God bless him that he knew that he had to be hospitalized. And I visited him. I went there to visit him. And it meant so much to him. And that's, that's a gift that we can give to each other. Don't hold back that gift by all means, support them and love them and give them. Another friend uh, in the program uh, recently had a medical, uh, well, he, he had a stroke and he can't go to meetings anymore. 
another friend is bringing a meeting into his his play his re residence, and there's now three or four people who go to that meeting in his residence just so that he can have a meeting once a week. Love them. They're our brothers. And whether they're your sponsee or a friend or whatever, love them. That's, that's what we're here to do. That's what God wants us to do is to connect you and me so that we can see he. That's how we connect. And sharing that love is what this is all about. Learning how to connect and learning how to love is what it is all about.